Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Despite the apparent nonstop construction of high-rise apartment and condo units in Madison's core area and beyond, most of the city's lower and middling income residents presently face what has become an affordable housing crisis, or more accurately, a crisis of affordability, both for renters and aspiring homeowners. Last fall, on October 6th, the Madison Common Council passed a resolution, quote, directing the city's housing strategy committee to examine and provide recommendations related to Madison's affordable housing crisis. As a result, the HSC was charged with studying the problem and preparing recommendations to the council due no later than August 6th of, of this year. Joining us today to explore some of the complexity of issues and concerns in regard to the housing crisis is the co-chair of the Housing Strategy Committee, Justice Castaneda. Uh, Justice Castaneda is also the current Executive Director of Commonwealth Development, Inc. So, Justice, it's good to have you on finally. We've talked about this for some time and I'm glad to have you on board today. Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, for having me. Let's um as I mentioned in my intro, the Madison Common Council back in October authorized the city's uh, housing St- strategy committee to examine the current housing situation deemed a crisis. Let's start with the nature of that crisis, often viewed as a lack of affordable housing. How do you describe it? Um so I, I guess I'm going to try and do this in real, I mean, I'm recognizing the audience and obviously I'm, you know, I'm here on WRT with Alan Ruff. So a lot of this stuff I think is the preamble I think you guys get, right? That basically over the last 60 years, we've seen a, a global shift towards, I feel like neoliberal has, it evokes a certain response. So I'll just say more austere economic policies, which is kind of emphasized, uh, deregulation, privatization, and, and kind of more of an open free market. And that's led to an erosion of labor rights. And uh, a big thing that's happened over the last 60 years has been the weakening of labor unions. I think in Wisconsin, we understand this. And the reason that that's relevant here is that, you know, again, I'm recognizing the audience, but a lot of uh, what that's done is it's actually affected real wages across the board. And that's ended up in a, a very extreme gap between, you know, our, our most wealthy and our most low income folks and uh, the accumulation of wealth. And I, I set that up because that to me is a lot of the underpinning of what we're actually dealing with. Now that's beyond what a city committee or a city council or a, a municipality can address. Now you couple with, uh, you couple that with a couple other things or um, one of which is the state's shared revenue formula. And a lot of folks, again, recognizing the audience, we're very familiar with the arguments there about what's happened with the share revenue formula uh, formula staying flat, where Madison and Milwaukee are not getting their, their share. And so the municipalities have less money to address a number of things that they're facing. And so, you, you know, you're kind of left with uh, property taxes as being one of your main forms of this, you know, for a city to be able to, to raise money. And then you couple that with preemption laws and the fact that uh, in addition to the state not allowing for uh, not allowing municipalities to get their share of the revenue, then you also limit their ability to do a number of things so that they can navigate things like housing crisis and uh, some of the other challenges that we have in, in terms of local economics, because cities are very limited. Now, you put all that together, and that's where you end up with the situation that we're in. And uh, I, I think it's really important to understand that, because a lot of the focus, it's a very supply-side conversation. Because the argument is that we just need more houses. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, in in terms of anything I'll say today, no one would ever argue against that. We do need more housing. That is a fact. We need to build more housing. Um, 
the priorities in terms of how we allocate and the things that we're prioritizing, I think that's a matter of, of debate. But, but you know, there is no debate that we need more housing. It's just all those other things also are contributing to this, and they need to be addressed concurrently with the supply side argument of more housing. So go take that a little bit further. Clearly, you're saying there's uh, quite a bit more than the classical market problem of demand outstripping supply, that the remedy in classical terms would be to bring down the cost of housing by building more units. Right. And, okay, so the way that this is presented is a very simple, it rolls off the tongue as a very simple supply and demand issue, where if you increase the supply of housing, you will therefore address the demand and, and be able to reduce the price. And that works if demand was finite. So if it, we knew that there was only 10 people that needed housing and we only had eight houses, then build 10 houses and you've solved the problem. The demand for housing in an area like Madison is unique in that it's largely exogenous to our municipality, meaning we import people. A lot of municipalities around the United States are not importing people at the rate that we are. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, sometimes you'll see presentations where we're kind of, they'll show these maps where like, part of the country is burning, part of the country is flooding. And then you see this thing where like, here we are, we're kind of like this island. And, you know, there, there's a pathological approach to thinking about the demand that I think is very troubling. But when you're thinking, but there's also a very real one in terms of uh, the cost of living in many places. So people are moving into the Midwest and uh, places like Madison for a number of reasons. I think there's been a lot of good stewardship of our commons. And so there's a lot of things here that people are attracted to, the university obviously being a key factor. And so the demand itself is exogenous, meaning it doesn't work that if we just build any housing, that therefore the housing prices will go down. And uh, and I think when you listen to a lot of, the, you know, you're, you read about this and there's a lot of, I, I think, uh, interest in, um, and we'll get into this, but the reduction or the re, um this idea that the regulations and the things that the city has to do to guarantee both quality of housing, but also really protecting our, our ecosystem, that somehow those things are cumbersome. And by having those in place, we're actually driving the costs up. And I, I think that there, it's really important to unpack that and to understand that that's not true. Well, I certainly want to come back to the push for uh, deregulation and what it has meant. Um, now, the Common Council's enabling resolution asked the Housing Strategies Committee to address several questions. One, how the city can support and creation of more ownership housing types. I love that phrase. Uh, number two, how the city can help scale up the development of new affordable rental units beyond the, the current, uh, current 400 units per year average. Uh, Three, how the city can support the creation of affordable student housing. You know, just as I read the, you know, the mandate, I found, I kept on asking myself two questions. One, what does affordable mean? That is affordable for whom? Everybody talks about need for affordable housing, right? How is, how is affordability determined? There's something out there often referred to uh, called the uh, what the the fair market price, who or what determines that? I mean, you know, how much is a baseball card worth? Uh, whatever someone will pay for it. Uh, so let's talk about this for a second. Affordable by definition means that someone's not paying more than a third of their income on housing. Why it's a third and not let's say twenty five percent? There's no. It's not like you know, that's in scripture. That was just a number. It went to a third, I believe, in the 19, early 1930s, it changed to a third. It was 25%, and a third was different than 25%, and so therefore we ended up with a third. So, but that's the definition. Now, as you're pointing out, um, well, what if your income is $250,000 a year, then, you know, affordable is having housing, that's a third of your income, and that, in terms of what you're paying for housing every month, is extraordinarily high. I think a, a main thing, and this is kind of the, the thing that I, I think about when we talk about the work of the committee, um, 
is to ask people, why do we need housing? And to just, it's a simple question. And, you know, it seems like it's a simple answer, basic need, you know, we need shelter, et cetera. But I think the way that we answer that question will tell us a lot about our, po our uh, political or, and uh, policy priorities. So do we need housing for young professionals so that we can attract businesses and capital to the area, therefore increasing the tax base uh, so that the city can do other things? Do we need housing for students at the university? Um, we need housing for elderly, for low-income elderly folks. I mean, and uh, I guess where I, you know, as an individual in terms of the work of Commonwealth Development, where I stand is that I think we need housing for our, our the bottom three quintiles of the income distribution as a form of neighborhood stability. Um, now, none of those answers are wrong per se. There is some merit and there's some, you know, in terms of people's proclivity or, you know, wherever they land, they're going to make those cases, but they're not, while not necessarily exclusive, they are not all the same in terms of the way that we should be prioritizing the very limited amount of money that the municipality has in terms of allocations for housing. And so I think that's where the contest is, and that's where a lot of the debate is in terms of what we should be doing with, uh, I'll just say, if we have 10 clamshells, how do we spend those 10 clamshells? Because... We only have 10 clamshells and uh, there's other things. So if we started with housing, uh, so does that answer your question first? I mean, I'll stop there. I wanna get into each one of the things though. I think the student housing, the home ownership and then the rental housing all have their own little uh, caverns that we can jump into. You're, you're listening to co-chair of the city's housing strategy committee, Justice Castaneda, the current Executive Director of Commonwealth Development, Inc. We'll be opening up the phone lines, as is the usual case, at half past the hour at 608-256-2001. If you have a question, a comment, an observation, you want to join in the conversation today, again, give us a call at, at the half hour at 608-256-2001. Justice, continue with that. Continue with the uh, because clearly there's different notions of what affordability means uh, and who should get what in a, in a limited pie. That pie is finite in terms of assistance from the city or uh, uh, based upon I income and accumulating wealth. Right. And I, I guess I should start this. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that work in city government and, and our, you know, as municipal workers and who have been working on this. And while we've had some spirited discussions and disagreements over the years, I have to, you know, you have to acknowledge uh, through administrations, meaning kind of transcending the mayoral administrations, a lot of the folks uh, at the Office of Real Estate, definitely Community Development Division, these folks have done a number of things and they've been actually quite masterful at using a very little you know, the very little that they're given to uh, do the most that they can while addressing, I would say, <laughs> this is the different, there's a couple different conversations. One of them is about the structure of our government, which I'll say it now, I won't say it again, but the, uh, when you have uh, a council that turns over with such rapidity and volatility, um, it's hard, you know, when you're, you know, when you're thinking about housing development or neighborhood development, these things take decades. And so the city staff have really been brilliant about uh, staying focused and, and creating the best tools and vehicles they can use given and within the, re the constraints that are placed on them by, uh, you know, limited revenue and the, the preemption stuff. So I just want to say that at the beginning. Um, when... So let's talk about home ownership first. Let's do this in terms of buckets. So home ownership, a lot of the conversations around home ownership and the importance of it, if you listen closely, are more juxtapositions to conventional renting than they are about home ownership. Now, I will, you know, again, being very reductive, they fall into a couple categories, one of which has to do with wealth generation, and the other one has to do with autonomy. So the first one in terms of wealth generation, there is this notion that the way that uh, white folks were able to accumulate wealth and intergenerational wealth throughout, uh, you know, until and through the uh, 20th century um, was through home ownership. And there's some truth to that. I will argue, though, that actually it had more to do with exclusivity in terms of access to capital than it was 
about home ownership itself. Home ownership was the vehicle that that exclus uh, exclusivity lived in. And so when you had exclusive access to location, meaning, and I'm talking about racial restrictive covenants and redlining, and when you had exclusive access to capital in terms of, by the way of loans and good loans, um, it is true that you were able to build wealth that way, but it doesn't hold that if all of a sudden we just start saying we need to prioritize home ownership, then therefore uh, BIPOC folks are therefore going to be able to accumulate wealth unless we also get the same type of exclusive access. Now, when you buy a house, unless you pay for it with the money in your pocket, you didn't buy the house. The bank bought the house. You bought the debt. And when you think about that in terms of who owns banks, the insurance uh, companies, the title companies, the uh, all of your financial institutions and where the money is, the actual wealth that's being accumulated, going back to that first you know, kind of the preamble to this in terms of accumulation of wealth and how that's changed and the way that this is working is that the majority of the wealth goes to the fire, the finance, uh, insurance and real estate industries, not to the person who bought the house. Now, if you hold that aggregate wealth is less important than inequality in terms of the health of a, a, a people, what you're actually doing by selling houses is you're increasing the gap in terms of aggregate wealth. And there's a number of things, especially because houses right now are selling for more than their assessed value because of the scarcity of it. You're buying an asset that actually isn't worth what you're paying for it. You're buying the debt on an asset that, you know, and I would say that banks are worse landlords than, uh, <laughs> than you get when you're renting. So, the wealth thing in, in terms of the way that that's going to work and the way it works isn't necessarily true. It doesn't hold up. The other part of it, though, the autonomy is very real. And there is a lot to be said. Uh, anyone that works in low-income rental or low-income housing knows that um, in terms of the regulations that are placed on renters and uh, income-restricted housing are pretty severe. It's a very onerous process to go through income recertification. It's very invasive. Um, and they're very concerned with things like who's staying at your house for how long. Um, you have to certify uh, your income every year. There's a number of things that, uh, in terms of oversight, that's placed on renters that you don't have if you have a place that you call your home. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so a challenge here, though, is that, again, going back to the 10 clamshells, houses are extraordinarily expensive to build right now. Um, with the Housing Strategy Committee, the Subcommittee on Homeownership, we just talked with builders and, you know, the low end, if you're very lucky, you can get a house built in Dane County for somewhere around 450000 but they're going all the way up to 600000 So going back to the Affordable Housing Fund in Madison, I believe is $10 million right now. So with $10 million or 10 clamshells, if it costs half, half a clamshell just to build one house, you're only going to get 20 houses in terms of the total demand and, and what you're really thinking about. And then go back to the idea that the build is going to impact the actual price of the unit. So who can afford that house? It's not going to be, again, you know, speaking from where our priority is at Commonwealth Development, again, as the bottom three uh, quintiles of the income distribution, it's not going to be folks who are in, in that income distribution. So you're not going to be able to get a lot of them. The home, the cost to build, this actually, you know, the kind of hip bone connected to the leg bone thing, there's another thing that goes into uh, funding and, you know, the state and the, the actual subsidies of higher education, which, again, is another deep, dark rabbit hole. But just the labor pool um, is not there to build at the clip that we need to build at. And so a lot of your regular size builders will say that they maybe can get 12 units in a year. So a house a month is what they can build at. So when you think about both the cost of it and then also the actual demand, I'm not saying that homeownership isn't something that we should aspire to, but whether or not a municipality is best equipped to subsidize that as a priority in terms of actually addressing a housing crisis, that's where I think that there's a lot of questions. So that's homeownership. And I think... Um, what happens, I, I think there's a lot of things that people are associating, and I think very accurately with conventional renting, 
that need to be addressed and that we need to continue to work on. And that, you know, it's really important that we, I think Madison is very, uh, you know, even though as a property owner, I will say it can make things uh, take longer sometimes, but I think having legal action, the tenant resource center, having these in the city is very important because it can help us address some of the, um, the challenges that we have with renting. Again, you're listening to Justice Castaneda. Uh, he's a uh, co-chair of the, Housing Strategy Committee, which is currently uh, analyzing, examining the, excuse me, the housing crisis in affordability crisis, really, uh, in Madison. I want to come back to the some of the recommendations uh, that were in that that enabling resolution uh, that directed the housing that has directed the Housing Strategy Committee's work. <clears throat> There was a recommendation that that's that supports increase called for the support of increasing housing options in order to meet the needs of people of at all income at all income levels. Why at all income levels? Clearly, there are people at the top of the ladder who uh, have the income and uh, are not in the equation when it comes to uh, being uh, priced out. Okay, so I think politically, I think if you're an elected official, it's hard not to say that. And so you'll hear the mayor say we need housing of all types. And um, and I appreciate the, the political pressure there. I, I think there's another thing that there's a couple concepts that are used. Uh, one is underconsumption and the other one, it's related to this concept of filtering. And uh, we'll talk about underconsumption first. So underconsumption suggests that people who make a lot of money um, – will, if there is not housing for them to pay the max rent in, they will take housing that uh, people who don't make as much money could otherwise access. And so they're going to, uh, if you make a lot of money, you're going to take housing that could be available, otherwise available to lower income folks. Now, I can tell you this, that of all, now, when we talk about the area median income in terms of what that means and the housing, when we call it affordable in terms of being able to get subsidized by tax credits, and maybe we'll get into that later, um, or through the city, you have to create housing from 30 to 80% of the AMI, of the area median income. Now, 80% of the area median income (laughs) is almost $90,000 a year some cases. So you're looking at housing or subsidizing housing for people who make almost $90,000 a year or household. And um, now, again, in terms of where I am, in terms of my advocacy work, I'm thinking about housing for people that are making much less than that, often a third or less than that. Uh, But that's still a very high number. Now, I can say with some degree of certainty that of all the income restricted housing that has been built, in Madison in the last five years, there are no people living in it who make more money than they are allowed to by the income restrictions that are put on the housing, even recognizing that the income restrictions allow for, I would say, relatively high incomes. The, uh, and, you know, I, I don't, this, this is something that's said, though, it's something that you'll hear a lot, is that well, what's happening by us not building are not allowing and giving a green light to all of uh, high end luxury or for, you know, max rent, unrestricted housing, market rate housing is uh, the way that they'll, they'll talk about that. What you're doing is you're setting up a situation for people who have high incomes to take over the housing that people who uh, couldn't otherwise afford housing would otherwise have access to. And I'm saying that that isn't true so long as we're making sure that we have these income restrictions, but so there's that. The other concept is this concept of filtering. And what filtering suggests is that if you build high-end housing, the people who were previously in higher-ended housing or higher-end housing, market-rate housing, will therefore move into this higher-end housing. And then people who are in lower, uh, you know, lower income or lower quality housing will then move into the housing that those people were in. And then that'll go all the way to the bottom and everyone will move around and move up. Now, two things with that. First of all, 
it's never been true in the United States that that ever happens in terms of a municipality, but particularly now there's some arguments where people have looked at this and uh, where you see it working are in cities, larger metro areas um, that ha that when you're looking at these in terms of micro economies within and so like think of LA or think of uh, New York where, you know, where does it start and end? And those cities are also losing people. So in um, metro areas that are losing people every year, there is some examples and some uh, things that you could point to around the United States where you're seeing that happen, but none in areas that are like Madison that has a uh, growth every year. So when we're experiencing growth, that just isn't going to work once again, because the demand is exogenous to the municipality. I know that doesn't roll out the tongue, but, uh, but it's an argument that's used. So, but if you think about this, it's suggesting that if you build market rate housing, that is higher end housing, that people, let's say, in Maple Bluff or Shorewood Hills are therefore going to move into this housing. And then people who have less income are then going to move into that housing. And, and it's just not real. It, you know, there's no examples of this working in terms of a aggressive push towards market rate housing. There's nothing to suggest that that happens. It sounds great as a rhetorical device, but there it isn't based or predicated on any reality. So filtering, filtering this concept as a kind of trickle down theory of housing. Right. Uh, 608-256-2001. Again, if you want to join, our phone lines are open. If you want to join in this conversation with Justice Castaneda, give us a call. Again, 608-256-2001. One of the recommend some of the wording of these recommendations in, uh, uh, I find very very interesting. Um, one was the recommend recommendations seeking recommendations that account for higher need amongst hard to reach communities. The wording of that struck me as a bit odd. I mean, like who are we talking about here? People without smartphones. What is what does hard to reach communities mean? Who are we talking about? I think it, re it can mean a lot of things, actually, um, in terms of the way the city is thinking about this. And I think um, start, you know, as an advocate for, I, you know, I, I, we at Commonwealth kind of take back the concept of low income, and I really believe in the concept, and I own it, and I'm actually very proud of it. I, you know, not to be crass, but if you, by vocation, had to wipe a behind today uh, to make a living, meaning children and or adults, you probably qualify for low-income housing. Um, because, the again, this goes back to the, the real wages conversation that we we're having at the beginning. So it can mean that. I think there's a, a very real need for housing for um, asylees and refugees. And I think in terms of, you know, again, another conversation, but in terms of global volatility, I don't see that uh, <laughs> slowing down anytime soon. And I think it's really important. I mean, another another conversation that, you know, if you had, if there was one group, uh, if one thing, and you had to invest in it from a purely capitalistic argument, and I can make this from a fiscally conservative argument, invest in immigrants, invest in infrastructure for immigrants. And there's so much to be said about that. So all that to say, I think for, for those populations, for populations whose uh, native, uh, first language is not English, I think there's a very real need for, 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 for housing for them and for support, supportive infrastructure for folks who are coming here from other places. Uh, I think for our lowest income folks in general, and this can mean a lot of different things. I think for low income seniors uh, and for our, our lowest income populations, I think that there's a very real need for housing. And if you go back to um, the rent burden conversation, so rent burden means you're paying over 30% of your um, income for rent. And extremely rent burden means that you're over 50%. And when you look at that demographically, folks of color in Madison and Dane County are disproportionately represented by uh, the being extraordinarily rent burdened. And so there's a lot of discussions about how to create housing for them. Now, the kind of, it's reductive, but the general formula for creating, you know, for looking or uh, assessing affordability is the cost of acquisition and then density. So how much it costs to buy the land and then how much you can build on it. A challenge you run into in the city, you know, is, like I said, the people, 
in the city who are working on this have looked at this extensively and they are, I think, being very, I think I've been very impressed with them in terms of the way that they're really trying to think about this because it, I think there is this, I think it's an inclination to just want to upzone, meaning let's just turn into Houston. There's no zoning restrictions. We can just build it. We'll get 123 story skyscraper next to the Willie Street co-op and, uh, you know, and then that somehow will solve some things. Now, a challenge with that thinking, and uh, Dr. Olivia Williams from the Madison Area Community Land Trust actually wrote a good piece on this a while back in uh, in Tone Madison. There's a number of challenges with that thinking, one of which is that the folks who are most likely going to be able to buy the land are going to be people with money already. And so there is no guarantee that if they buy the land, they're going to create low-income housing. Matter of fact, as long as they can be profit maximizers, what makes the most sense is for them to uh, max out the rents on those properties, right? So so there is that that, that goes on with it. And so the, the thing the city can do in that situation is land banking. Um, now, the challenge, of course, is that land is not cheap. And it's definitely not cheap in Madison on the isthmus or areas that have good bus lines that are near food. Um, that have are near schools, you know, the land is not cheap. And so going back to that same, that challenge about shared revenue and why that's such a big deal is that the city does not have infinite money to come in and support um, the, the land banking that would make it able to be more aggressive at creating more of the affordable or low-income housing. Uh, Jay tells me that we do have a caller with a question or a comment. Hello, Ron, you're on the air. Right. Thanks, Alan, for the show. Uh, my question for your guest is is uh, a couple of qu- questions, actually, is have you looked at the model of Vienna, Austria, where they have had a lot of public housing developed and developed a very extensive system of public housing at a very affordable rates, I might add, um, as a model instead of the models that you remembered uh, you've talked about here in New York and L.A., but I think you should look beyond it into Europe, which just uh, has uh, these kinds of uh, public housing developments, and in Scandinavia as well. And then my second question is, is have you worked with LISC, the local initiative support corporation, to leverage extra money to get housing built here in Madison, uh, through larger corporate entities that have loaned to LISC and given it money to move around the country, as far as I understand it, anyway. And uh, finally, what foundations could be brought in to build or to build a land trust that would help the city uh, also fight for greater revenues at the state level? Because the, you're right, the shared revenue is absolutely critical. But originally, uh, started out as uh, 70% of the shared revenue went back to the cities and counties. Uh, that's been changed by the legislature, but it could be changed back. And so I'm wondering if someone's making an, an effort to reformulate shared revenue. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Justice Castaneda. Um, I think, you know, the European models, I know people like, I mean, not to dismiss it, I think that there's a lot of examples that we should be using from all over and where it's working, I think people should take from them and they should kind of look at them. Uh, I think there is, you know, United States is its own special snowflake in terms of its policies around uh, kind of what would be called the proverbial social safety net and the way that we prioritize things uh, around, you know, kind of a universal access to basic needs. And so I think part of why so many things are U.S. focused is because we're dealing with kind of U.S. markets. Again, I think it's really important that we do look at other areas. I think, you know, Malmo, I I can name, I could just, you know, just kind of from planning school, I could just start naming cities, not just in Europe, but also in Canada and stuff that they're doing in other places. Uh, a lot of times the the concept of preemption and the things that we're seeing with state regulations and lack of support at the state level, uh, you know, you run into blocks there. The second 
question about Lisk. I know of Lisk. I know that they do a lot of things. What I would say, and I, you know, again, I can't speak for the city of uh, Madison in terms of the staff, but my observation of them is that they have been very creative and aggressive at working with a number of, you know, any funding source, any way that they can increase the amount uh, of money that they have available. Um, I think this this went on without anyone. I, I, it was kind of under the radar, but the city of Madison was able to work with the uh, the money from the Biden administration last year to do something called the capital improvement for nonprofit housing. And the capital improvements that they were able to, to provide for very low-income housing, uh, everything from the exteriors to interiors to structural work, it's it's phenomenal. And like just looking at that. So I, I say that just to say, I don't know specifically about whether the city has worked with LISC or in what capacity they have. We, I, Commonwealth has for other things, but um, not for housing. So I don't know. I do know that the city works with a lot of folks. Now, the land trust model, I think... In some ways, um, there is Madison Air Community Land Trust, I kind of named it, is an attempt to do that. It, um, a challenge that you know a land trust model always runs into is the acquisition of land, and it works best. I, I know a number of them. I worked with a number of them around the United States before coming back to Madison. Dudley Street in Roxbury uh, or Boston, it, um, I think they had 1,500 units all at once. And I think getting that type of land and then using a land trust model is a great idea. A lot of our nonprofit housing providers, in essence, work the same way in that you're creating permanent, you know, the land will stay or the housing will stay permanently affordable or low income uh, for as long as it lives. I think the shared equity models, you know, there's also with the homeownership thing, there's another kind of contested space, which is, is the purpose of housing and home ownership situations, whether it's a land trust, Commonwealth has at least a purchase home ownership program, but is the purpose of it, wealth generation or permanent affordability. And again, those don't have to be exclusive, but they are not necessarily the same. I, you know, my bias is to permanent affordability. That means that you're not thinking about how much money people can make at the sale, which for a lot of people, that's the purpose. I mean, this is, you know, kind of the meta argument is, is housing a commodity or is it a public good? Um, it definitely operates today. It is, you know, in our economy, it is a commodity, which says a lot about how we think about these things. But, it, you know, if you can, if people felt so inclined is to say, you know what, making money at the sale is not as important as having permanent affordability in a municipality. I think, you know, I would agree. And I think that we should really be thinking about that in the land trust model. And, uh, you know, Olivia, Dr. Williams is uh, an expert in land trust, land trust policies, and she's done a lot of work really to bring, to lift that up in Madison and Dane County and to really explore the uh, opportunities that are present there. I think there's a number of alternative home ownership types. Co-ops, I think, are, um, you know, I think there's a lot of movement and work around, you know, reintroducing a very old concept uh, and really understanding the importance and the value of it. I think co-housing um, is another model that people are really exploring in terms of it. A lot of things, that's something at Commonwealth that I thought about when we first got here is what's happening with these security deposits. But it turns out another preemption thing that we're not allowed to uh, to let people's security deposits work for them. So, you know, it's another one of those things that if you rent for a certain amount of time, you're not making any money on your security deposit or, you know, or on, you know, you're not getting equity on on the property. Whereas if you, you own the ideas that you're, you're going to be able to, uh, to own. So all those are really good ideas. I think it's really important that we do look at a lot of different models. Um, the hour, we're, we're already short of time here and I got so much we could talk about. In, you know, writing to me prior to the program, uh, Justice, you, you used the concept uh, that I want you to talk about a little bit. And that is the... Um, the notion of uneven neighborhood development and how that affects the, the, the playing field. Talk about that a little bit. What is uneven? Uh, you know, uneven this is another, this is, this actually goes back into the structure of government conversation, but Madison, um, I, you know, again, I'm very conscious of the audience. I mean, we know that it's a very segregated city. Madison and Milwaukee have, 
distinction is of being some of the most segregated places in the United States um, by, you know, kind of the de jure segregation, meaning by de by uh, deed restrictions and redlining that happened here and that affected the way that their cities were, were laid out. And so, you know, when it takes a couple of hours to get from the north side to the west side on public transit and you look at where transit runs the best is in, you know, on the isthmus. Um, and again, the city is doing what they can to address that. Uh, part of the argument around the, you know, we just need to build any types of housing. When you think about what that means and that it's going to bring down the cost. Well, if all of the housing that is, you know, the good housing that's being built is by all of the amenities and then the neighborhoods that have been peripheralized, you know, uh, where you see concentrations of BIPOC populations in Madison are not getting the same treatment and there's not the same focus. I think that presents a challenge. Now, part of that is that, and, I, you know, this is a structure of government thing, but the focus on neighborhood development just hasn't been there. It it comes and goes and it goes and it comes and goes with different cycles of the common council but when you know the common council turns over any number of times in a decade so you have any number of combinations of folks in a decade it's very difficult to to have a sustained focus on i think healthy neighborhood development and um there is an example i mean it's it's a biased example but uh the meadowwood neighborhood i think there's been some amazing work there uh there's still a lot of work to be done but that's really been a testament to people at the city like city staff, uh, county staff, a lot of neighborhoods, faith-based organizations, and just, you know, people who have been out there grinding to make sure that that stayed together. So, you know, if we don't have equitable development and a focus and thinking about this, all of the development and, and where we're going to see this is all going to be in the places that are going to be closest to the economy and closest to amenities. And you're not going to see uh, accessibility to our lowest income populations, which is kind of what we're seeing today. I want to come back to um, that acronym FIRE, the FIRE sector of the economy, finance, insurance, real estate interests. I want to do that primarily because I've long been fascinated with the um, unrefined usage of the term, the generic term, the developers, developers. Um, you know, in, in prepping for the program today, I, I went online and I caught quite a list. Somebody made a list of uh, the fire economy, the constituents, that is banks and credit unions, which we've touched on, credit card companies, insurance agencies, mortgage brokers, investment brokerages, real estate agencies, hedge funds, and more. Um, what, do you, what do you mean when you use the term developers? It's a good question. I mean, the Developer, I always say developer to real estate is similar to producer in movies. Often it just means the people who have the money. But more complex than that is the people who are willing. It's about risk. It's about being able to take risk. And that has to do with, with money. But having money and then being able to put a project together, being able to handle the subs, being able to um, contract it out, being able to make sure that it goes through in terms of the legalities, in terms of all of the permitting, all of the other things to get the project through, that's the developer. Um, but it is a very ubiquitous term. And I think, uh, I don't know, there, it, it, uh, there's another thing that's happening here about um, increasing diversity within the developers and what that actually means in terms of allocation. I mean, you know, it, it, it is a ubiquitous concept that doesn't have a definitive meaning. A lot of times it just means the people who have the money uh, that can take the risk in terms of acquiring a property and or building something on it. It isn't but something it, other than that. But it also has this connotation. Uh, I, I hear people using it in terms of um, progress and growth uh, and that development uh, is always a, a positive thing and it can go on onward and upward forever. Right. I mean, it does, right? It has the, uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it comes out of, you know, whatever you're thinking about this in terms of human biology, that de development means, you know, progress. Um, it's interesting because I think it's, it's also used in the pejorative. I mean, uh, it's just the developers, I guess, Commonwealth, we're a developer. Um, 
I was trained in real estate development. I guess that makes me a, a developer. Uh, but but I, I think that that question comes back. You know, it comes back into this thing. It's like um, it, it's kind of like successful. Like the term you you haven't completed the sentence. Like when someone says they were successful, I mean, I get that. What we mean is that they made money. But if you ask the rest of the question, which is like, what were you successful at doing? And so when you think about development in the same way, like what did you actually create? What was the value that was actually created? I think you get a different interpretation of what that means. But I, I do think that it is gone. And so a lot of times when we talk about development and that we're limited in terms of the developers and uh, in terms of who will build things, another way of saying that is we're limited in terms of the people who have the money to take the risk of buying a property and trying to build something. And then I think the rest of that sentence is in order to make more money. And I think uh, my predecessor here at Commonwealth, one of my favorite or the quotes that are attributed to Marianne Morton is that if you're doing low-income housing correctly, there's no money to be made in it. Uh, hopefully you can cover overhead costs and you try really hard not to lose money, but there's no real money made if you're actually creating low-income housing. Um, and if you just think, go back to that thing about housing as a public good or as a commodity, I think a lot of it is, you know, this is that question, which is why would I do it if I can't make any money off of it? And this, you know, a, a lot of what, when you hear quote unquote developers uh, saying that they can't make a project affordable or they can't make it work, it's another way of them saying that I can't build housing there and make the money that I need to make off of it. And so therefore the project isn't feasible, which is not the same as saying that we can't do it. It's just saying that I can't make as much money doing it, which I think is an important distinction. There's another, let's talk, you know, we got but a couple few minutes left here. Um, talk about the push to deregulate the real estate market and who that benefits. Well, so the narrative is, um, that doing business in Madison is cumbersome and that it is a very slow progress because there's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of uh, the bureaucratic red tape that, um, and I will say that there are a lot of things that the city of Madison over the years has asked people who are going to build in a marsh uh, to consider. And I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of those things are really important and that we need to have that kind of check and balance in place. Um, the argument, or I think the tension is that we need housing and we need a lot of it right now. And so what people want is they want to be able to be greenlit to just build and they don't want to have to deal with uh, building inspection or they don't want to deal with the community development division. They don't want to deal with, the, uh, um, they don't want, to hear that I have to make sure that I'm, if I'm going to take city money, that I need to contract with people who pay a prevailing wage. Uh, I don't want to hear that, you know, they don't want to hear that if I'm going to take city money or money from the government that I have to list who I'm contracting with and make good faith efforts to have a diverse group of contractors at least be able to bid on the project. Um, they want to just be able to come in and build the housing because we need housing now. Now, whether or not the urgency of the housing and the need to do all those things are exclusive, I think that's, again, a matter of uh, political persuasion. I, the city does a lot. And I, 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 on one hand, in terms of, you know, when we built a building, I think there are a lot of things that you have to go through. But I think my experience, and again, this is just mine, is that when you work with them, they also do a lot of handholding. And there is a lot of information that they make available to you. There's a development assistance team, which is extraordinarily helpful, where you basically go in with your team, your architect, and you sit there in every department in the city who touches it, everyone from fire to the assessor, engineering, uh, parks, they all sit around a table and they look at this project and they give you kind of a menu of things that you have to consider. Um, you know, some of them, I think for the, the core elements of it, I think it's really important that there's some things uh, around, let's say that we're trying to push for more uh, bikes or less cars. There's some, thought that went into that those ordinances and uh, while they are they do make it more expensive to build and they take time it i don't think it's necessary i don't think we can just dismiss them i mean there was some thought that went into them so 
I don't know. I think some of it needs to be reconsidered. I think there needs to be a better process to really think through some of these ordinances. Well, at the same time, I think a lot of the things that we have to consider when we're building are in there for a really good reason. Now, it does mean that the build sometimes costs more, and this goes back into the cost to, to build. And so, for instance, you run into this with the Davis-Bacon Act, certain projects that are funded with city money and government money have to make sure that they are paying the prevailing wage or the contractors are paying the prevailing wage. There is kind of a, a thing here, there's a tension, because if that makes the project go up by up to 30%, all of a sudden the rents are going to go up, which makes it harder to create low-income housing. And so these tensions are very real. I don't think that they have to do with prevailing wage or city regulations. I think the things that we talked about at the top of the show are actually where a lot of these pro problems lie. But where we deal with them in terms of the creation of housing is at the build. And so the people who get the brunt of the critique or the criticism are the city who is actually just enforcing you know, ordinances that were created to mitigate a lot of the challenges that were presented to us because of those other things. Justice, we just have a couple minutes left in the hour. I want you to uh, say a word about Commonwealth Development, Inc. and what its project is. What are you doing? So Commonwealth Development, um, it's our 45th anniversary. It uh, was created in 1979. Uh, from what I understand of it, a bunch of uh, is in kind of a protest movement around Willie Street being commercial, but also in the where Willie Street was uh, – much more volatile place, uh, also more affordable than it is today. Um, a bunch of musicians and got together and they created a little street fair to protest some planned development uh, in front. I think it was a Taco John's in front of uh, Willie Street mm -hmm. Park. And uh, after two years of that, um, they raised enough money to create what became Commonwealth Development. And that fair is now called the Willie Street Fair. Everyone's invited. If you say my name, you can get in for free. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so we, what we were created for as is a violence prevention effort and the thinking, the school of thought went in. If you're trying to create permanent, you know, you're trying to actually do violence prevention correctly. You don't do it through programming. You do it by buying up land and creating low income housing for residents and for families. And then you create an economy and then you train people to work in that economy. And so uh, we have housing in the Marquette neighborhood and in the Meadowood neighborhood. And uh, we just started partnering with some folks in the Arbor Hills neighborhood to really think about what the long-term is there. We have some business incubators and every year we, uh, we throw a big fair. Well, Justice Castaneda, um, uh, I'm, like I said, at the top of the hour, it's been taking a while. We've talked for a long time about you coming on and talking about some of these issues. And I hope to have you back as, as this, um, uh, re these resolutions come to fruition that you've been mandated with in the uh, uh, Housing Strategy Committee. You've been listening to Justice Castaneda, who uh, is with how the he's on the Housing Strategy Committee of the city, but also Executive Director of Commonwealth Development. I want to thank Jade for helping to produce today and Jack for engineering. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Prisoners, if you can't afford to feed none, don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome.